This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Stevenson and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing and I want to welcome you to the Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York which is located in the heart of Times Square on 42nd Street where Broadway, Off-Broadway and Off-Off-Broadway all meet to bring the magic of live <coughs> theatre. Here right now are the seminars that tend to tell you a little bit more about what it is to work in the theater. The Wing is perhaps best known for its Tony Awards, but we do more than that, and it is a year-round program that the Wing has. We send shows to hospitals, to sit-ins. The people in the theater work with us, the cast of Broadway shows like 42nd Street and, and all kinds of cabaret performers come to the hospitals under the Wing's banners. We also have a program called Saturday Theatre for Children, which is perhaps one of the most important programs that I can think of because we bring theatre into the schools on Saturday mornings right into their own neighborhoods. And the children line up and they make the decision as to whether they're going to go to see a live theatre or whether they're going to play baseball or whatever else it is. And we hope that doing that instills a love and a need for theater that will last a lifetime, that will really provide the audiences of the future. It's not good enough to go to the theater just because it is a blockbuster or the hottest ticket in town. One has to go to the theater because there is a need and a love and they know what good theater is. So that's what we're hoping will turn about and we have already seen much of this take place. And then there are these seminars which comes out of the Wing School program. It's a wonderful, wonderful program where we tend to bring you a behind the scenes look on what it is to work in the theater. The performers, the playwrights, the directors, the scene designers and the lighting people and the producers all come and discuss how important it is to know each other's craft as they work in the theater. So because we have a wonderful panel, and we have marvelous co-moderators. I am now going to introduce to you 
Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and one of the most knowledgeable people I know in the theatre, who has done almost all the things that we talk about. And Ed Wilson, who is a wonderful critic and is perhaps doffs his critic's hat right now and becomes just a lover of theatre, as we all are, and a knowledgeable one at that. They, in turn, will introduce the panel to you. Thank you very much for being here. Ed? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Isabel. As you say, we have quite a distinguished panel. And the first person I'd like to introduce is on my far right, an actress who was born in Canada and now lives in the United States, but won fame really initially in Great Britain, where she was a member of the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. I first saw her 10 years ago uh, playing Susan Traherne in David Hare's Plenty. It was an incredible performance, and she won the London Critics Award as the Best Actress of the Year for that. She later performed it at the Public Theatre here and on Broadway. Uh, she received an American Theatre Wing Tony nomination for that, and also for her performance in Moon for the Misbegotten. She has been a film actress as well in films such as Eye of the Needle, Dracula, and Without a Trace. Uh, she has been on Broadway also in Serious Money and currently is in a play, Spoils of War, Miss Kate Nelligan. <laughs> Next to her, the star of the provocative and fascinating play, M. Butterfly, uh, playing the part of Renee Gallimard, which I hope we can explore a little later uh, because it is an incredible part. Uh, an actor who has played on Broadway in a number of productions. He was nominated for an American Theatre Wing Tony Award for his performance in Bent. He played Salieri in Amadeus. He's been in The Visit, The Rebel, School for Wives, Frankenstein, Dracula, just a whole host of Broadway shows. He's played over 40 roles in the resident professional theatre around the country. He's been in a number of films, Wild Party, A Little Romance, First Deadly Sin, and many more, and he's been in a number of television shows, including specials Cain and Abel, Strange Interlude, Winds of War, and War and Remembrance, Mr. David Dukes. And to my immediate right, one of the best known and finest actresses in the American theater, someone who has delighted us on many occasions and is currently doing so in a play called Cafe Crown, a wonderful revival of a 1942 play, which is marvelous to be able to get a chance to see again. Uh, she has been in so many plays, Rhinoceros, Middle of the Night, O Men, O Women, Major Barbara, which she played in with Charles Lawton and Eli Wallach, Waltz of the Toreadors, Typist and the Tiger, Love, I could go on and on, and many television shows, including Golda Meir with Ingrid Bergman, and also films with, I find, a number of fascinating titles. I'm just going to read three or four of these. <laughs> the Secret Life of the American Wife, Lovers and Other Strangers, The Tiger Makes Out, and How to Save Your Marriage and Ruin Your Life. <laughs> Miss <laughs> Ann Jackson. Jean. Yeah. On my left far left is an absolutely marvelous actor who goes easily from classical roles 
Shakespeare and so forth to modern plays like the one he's in now, which is Checkmates. And he's been, he's been in uh, also a number of great shows, uh, A Lesson from Aloes, which I remember so well, wonderful play, um, Richard III. Uh, I'm going to ask him later what he played in Richard III. <laughs> Uh, the Enemy of the People and uh, the Latent Heterosexual. And uh, I'm so glad that Checkmates is still playing and that you're in it. Uh, Mr. Paul Winfield. <laughs> now we have an actress who has been an actress all her grown-up life. And she's acted in every... <laughs> and I mean that. On and off the stage, she is an actress. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she loves being it. And of course, I think actresses should be actresses, and I think they should look like them. I, I don't like to see <laughs> I don't like to see beautiful girls with the, their hair, you know, crimped and looking as though they never combed it and wearing uh, sneakers. And I really don't like it. I like them to look the way she does, like an actress. <laughs> uh, she's, uh, she's played in, uh, I don't know, countless plays, dozens and dozens of them. Uh, and I'll tell you a few of them. Uh, where is she here? Um, the Balcony, I remember that so well, downtown and the circle in the square. The Iceman Cometh with Jason Robards. The Kitchen, the night of the Iwana, where she made a tremendous hit, and her own show, It's Me, Sylvia. And uh, right now, oh, I have to say, she was nominated. She's done 40 films, and that's not down here. And she was nominated for her roles in two of them, Farewell, My Lovely, and Midnight Cowboy. And everybody re remembers Midnight Cowboy. And also, she was nominated as Best Actress in London, where she made Vera Carre of Tennessee Williams a hit, which it never was over here. Sylvia Miles. <laughs> and I fell in love with this man many years ago when he played uh, uh, eat a horse, <laughs> Mangi Cavallo, <laughs> in the red hat, the uh, rose tattoo, uh, with Maureen Stapleton. Uh, I did the uh, rose tattoo later at the city center with Maureen Stapleton. I couldn't get him because he was working in London, but I got another very good actor. And I said, "Did you see Eli in in the play originally?" He said, "Yes." I said, "Will you please play it exactly the same?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's, he's been, of course, in many, many plays. And uh, <coughs> uh, I remember him not only in, oh, in Camino Real. And did you call it Real or Real? Either way. Yeah. <laughs> no, because Tennessee Williams told me it was not Real, Cam Camino Real, which is Spanish, because that means the royal way. And he said, I was writing about the real way, the nitty gritty way of life. So that's why I, I asked you. He, um, I remember him too in, in The Typist and the Tailor, which was the first, I mean, Tiger. Uh, the first time that I saw him with his wife, his wonderful wife. 
And uh, isn't it great that they're playing again together and they're down on a big hit? And, and, and it's by Highcraft who would be so happy if he could see this wonderful revival. Uh, I was really very moved also by the setting. I hope you move to Broadway so you all get Tonys, but I do think that, <laughs> that Santo Loquasto deserves a, a, a Tony for the wonderful set in Cafe Crown, which of course was the Cafe Royale when I used to go down and visit it with Jed Harris many years ago. Wonderful Eli Wallach. As Isabel has said earlier, this is a seminar about working in the theater. How uh, the craft is developed, how the profession is, and we're talking to experts today. And since we're talking about working in the theater, I think it would be nice to start off asking each person here to tell us a little bit about how they got started in the theater. Uh, something about their training, perhaps, but particularly perhaps if there's a one person or one moment uh, one event, one show they saw that really determined for them the fact that this was going to be their career. Uh, that decisive incident or person uh, that affected their career and started, this on the, uh, started them on this path. And I'd like to start with Paul. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> so prepared. I guess, uh, well, basically, I'm a West Coast actor. This is, I've been acting for almost 30 years now, but this is really my first time on Broadway, as it were. It takes us a little longer to get here, I guess. Um, us, I mean black actors. The, um, but I started basically in uh, the academic route. I went to college, uh, so different kinds all on the West Coast, uh, UCLA, University of Portland, Stanford, um, all of them kicked out of the best. <laughs> but the, uh, but I really found academic theater really sort of fascinating at the time. And since I don't sing or dance, my parents, my teachers all said, well, you best get in it. I mean, if you're going to get in, go into the theater, the only place we really, you can really fit or at least make a living would be in academic theater. Uh, because um, there weren't many opportunities, at least that I was aware of and they were aware of, for, for black actors. And particularly if you wanted to be, do the classics or whatever. Um, well, I was going that route, and it was about, uh, I guess, in the early 60s when the Civil Rights Movement basically came. And if I really owed anyone uh, for my career, I guess it would be Martin Luther King, um, because he sort of brought the whole Civil Rights Movement into the living rooms of white America. And, and it was suddenly as interest in these people who before, I guess, could have been living on the other side of the moon. But uh, in terms of who were these people who would uh, risk having hoses turned on them or, or dogs being sicked on them just for the right to vote or to sit at a lunch counter, um, uh, things that we take too much for granted today, I guess. But the, at that time, Hollywood also became somewhat interested in, in black Americans and uh, and the television industry opened up a bit. Uh, we saw a few more black faces on commercials, on TV shows like Julia, with Diane Carroll, um, 
a few movies, a mo not a few, but a lot of suddenly black movies came into Vogue, um, and I happened to be there <laughs> at the time, <laughs> luckily, and had some and had a tra and had training in the theater. Um, I guess my first really big play was uh, Leroy Jones's Dutchman and the Toilet that Burgess Meredith directed in Los Angeles. We toured it in San Francisco. Um, I've, in terms of people that I've worked with that have really, that I've really found fascinating, and I've learned, I guess, the greatest from was I was basically a spear carrier or the third knight in King Lear that Morris Karnofsky did at the, uh, at, at that time it was called the group, the um, LA Group Theater in, in Los Angeles, um, that John Houseman, who recently died, directed. But I stood in the wings every night. I mean, it was his performance as if, as if I saw it yesterday. It was, it was a combination of the method of classical acting, fantastic vocal control. Uh, when he says, you know, let me not be mad, he did a thing with his voice that really went up, and it was like a piano wire breaking. It was just, it was an education. And the other education, I guess, was Zero Mostel in the latent heterosexual. I, find, I saw how great comedians get laughs, no matter what. He would set them up, bimp, bip, bip, and whether the audience heard the punchline or not, they knew they were supposed to laugh on this <laughs> particular time. That was another education for me. I guess I've learned a lot by watching and also by doing. Uh, I've done an awful lot of plays in Los Angeles over 25 of them at the Mark Taper alone and every and I was also in the Los Angeles when the theater was just small theater was just developing and it was a lot of opportunities to do that so there's really no need to come to New York <laughs> I kept telling myself <laughs> but that's basically it right Sylvia Oh, well, I Where did you start being this actress that you've uh, I, been on I and originally off started, um, I, I was going to be a set designer. I was an art major and I was studying at Pratt Institute. And uh, I, I think I was one of the last students of Norman Belgetti's, who kept telling me that there was no future really for a woman in set designing because it was kind of like a family tradition handed down and so forth. But he said, if you want to, then get a job working as, a, as an assistant or, as, you know, apprentice to a set designer. So I was 15 and a half years old, and I got a job as the prop girl to the set designer of a small theater on Long Island. And he sent me out to buy the props, and I paid $90 for them. And at the end of the week, I went to the producer with the bill of the $90, and he said, well, this is stupid. You don't buy these things. You know, you borrow them, and we give them a credit in the program. I said, but we've already used them. Where's the $90? So he said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a part in the play. <laughs> and this is the salary, $90. And he said, the only part I have is this 90-year-old man in the Caucasian chalk circle. <laughs> so I, I was given this role. And uh, the, actually, what had, happen what had happened was the play had already been in rehearsal. And the original 90-year-old man passed away. <laughs> so, and they made me up to, and I sort of looked like Confucius. I remember I have a photograph of it. And I walked out on stage, and my, they said, place the child in the circle of chalk. And I realized I was 90 years old, and I had to take the time to walk slowly as an old man. And I took inch by inch. <laughs> 
step by step, about 20 minutes later, I reached the center of the stage, totally unaware that the other actors were glaring at me, you know, ready to kill me. And I placed the chart and then turned around and another 20 minutes to get back to the other side of the stage. Well, the feeling was so... Uh, it was so incredible, I thought, well, this is much better than, you know, set design. <laughs> Nobody could do anything until I got back to where I was supposed to be. <laughs> so that's... Uh, that's marvelous. Let me say one thing about Sylvie that I forgot to say. She's a master chess player. She beats me at backgammon, and she does the Sunday Times crossword puzzle in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, the you notice you don't get paid for yeah. any of those things. <laughs> Eli. Well, since we're doing a play about the Yiddish theater, my parents took me to the theater as a little boy, and uh, I'll never forget the scene. The young man had been sent off to war, engaged to, to a beautiful, rich girl, and he came back from the war like this. And... Uh, the woman he was engaged to, the girl said, oh no, I will not have him, I will not have him, I will not have a damaged person. But the poor girl who really loved him said, I'll, I'll marry him, I and he went, ha! <laughs> and I jumped out of my seat and said, I, I'll, I'll become an actor. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I went off to the University of Texas as a young boy from Brooklyn. And, uh, I, I ushered at a theater there, and I, Walter Houston was playing in a play, Dodsworth. And I went backstage at the intermission, and I said, Mr. Houston, I'm from Brooklyn, and here I am in Texas, but I want to get into the theater. And he flipped his cigarette away and said, we all do, kid. <laughs> and he walked in. But anyway, I... Uh, Everyone in my family were teachers, and it was determined that I would be a teacher. In the 30s, it, they didn't need teachers, so I took the exam with about 2,000 others. 25 passed, and I did not pass. I got a scholarship to a school called the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. The teachers were extraordinary. Martha Graham and Sanford Meisner, and they both have had a tremendous influence on my, on my work and my career. That's it. Annie? Oh, I didn't say how I met her. Maybe she can tell Well, I didn't know anything about theater, but I, I guess I was about four years old, or five, when I saw my first movie. And then when I saw that movie, I thought that I would grow up to be an actress on the screen and kiss the leading men and wear fur at the bottom of my skirt. <laughs> That's really what I wanted, because it was the 30s, you know, and they were all with their shoulders in satin, and it was very glittery and, and lovely. And then when I was in high school, I guess I got, I, uh, got into a school play, and I kind of liked the feeling that all actors like of having the, the uh, power of going into another soul and... and uh, making believe I was somebody else and convincing an audience that what I said I meant. And uh, then I, I went into the John Golden auditions when I got out of, out of uh, high school. And uh, I did a, a monologue that a teacher had written for me that was from um, Anne of Green Gables. And I had red hair. 
and freckles. And I sat and pretended that I was riding in a carriage and a little orphan girl. And of course, the audience liked that. So I won that. <laughs> I won the John Golden auditions. And I, w I then went uh, after that. No, before that, I went to the neighborhood playhouse. And I got there through uh, Herbert Burkhoff, who was uh, an enormous influence on me. Herbert was a refugee, and he was in love with the theater. And I went to see him carrying uh, uh, Ulysses under one arm and Gauguin's journals under the other, neither of which I had read. I just thought that that would be impressive. And indeed it was. And he, he um, took me in his class and then got me, helped me get a scholarship to the Neighborhood Playhouse with Sandy Meisner. And then it was a matter of uh, when I studied acting, and I realized it took 20 years to be an actress. I thought, oh, gee, that's an awfully long time for me to get my fur on my skirt and my satin <laughs> dress. But I then got put in, in a play with Eva Legallion called The Cherry Orchard that's written by Anton Chekhov. I played the ingenue, and I fell so madly in love with myself in the costumes, <laughs> myself as a Russian, <laughs> that uh, the movies didn't have the glamour for me anymore. It certainly didn't have the mood and the beauty of playing for a live audience in a great play. And then by that time, I was hooked. So then there were a series of flops, and uh, I'm still waiting for another Chekhov play. <laughs> David. That's it. Yeah, that's terrific. David. Well, I'm uh, another West Coast actor, and uh, I was uh, born and raised in San Francisco. And I, uh, I guess the first performance I ever saw that got me going was they took my English class in my junior year of high school, went to see the Actors' Workshop in San Francisco. I saw Robert Simons do Falstaff in Henry IV, Part One, And it's a performance I can still remember this day. And then I started taking drama classes because I thought that looked like a lot of fun. And, uh, and then the other major influence was Laurie Schwartz, who was my leading lady in the first play I ever did in high school. And Laurie was this girl that I had known since grammar school, but had no time for me. But in the course of the run of this play, she, my first French kiss was in front of a sold-out house in the middle of the lab. <laughs> and after that, I had to go into the theater. There was no choice. Because it, it beat mathematics all the hell, I'll tell you. And, so I went to college, still as a math major, but I, uh, I started doing a lot of community theater. And, uh, and in my second year of college, a man named James Dunn took over the college department. He's still a major influence in my life, and he, he was just a great director. And, uh, and then I joined ACT some years later, and Bill Ball and Ed Hastings, and there was a whole series of people at ACT that, uh, that, that got me going. And I just, I, I don't know, I fell in love with it. Uh, 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 doing the Shakespeare and, uh, you know, in all the Shakespeare festivals on the West Coast. And I don't know, I've just never turned back. And I, you know, television and films I do to pay the rent, but theater I come back to because it's home. So uh, it, it, I'm still waiting for the, another Laurie Schwartz. So. <laughs> Kate. Oh, um, I grew up in a small town in Canada, and um, I, I guess I thought I would be an academic. I was a very shy kid. and. I went on a scholarship to university to, to study um, French literature. And as I joined the volleyball team and I joined, somebody said, go, you know, they're doing these plays. And, and so I went and I, my first role was um, Gertrude in Hamlet and I was 16. <laughs> and I had a great dress, it was purple. And, and it was low cut and my father walked out because the dress was too low cut. <laughs> And, um, and then the, somebody said, you know, you really are an actress, that's what you should be. And it seemed astonishing to me. I'd never seen a play. I left the next year. Somebody filled out an application form because I, 
I was too shy to do it. A teacher at the school said, they're holding auditions in New Haven, Connecticut for the Central School of Speech and Drama. It costs $25. I'll give you the $25. So um, I went there and I auditioned and, 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 and then this blue envelope arrived and said, you have a place. And I went to England. I'd still never seen a play. Um, <laughs> I saw a play the first time when I was 20 years old in my second year studying to be a professional actor. Um, and I, I studied there for three years at, at a you know, posh English school. I don't remember what I learned there. I'm sure I learned something, but I don't know what it was. Um, the people who taught me are, are all actors. I don't learn from directors, by and large. Uh, I learn from actors. I learn from great actors, is, the, is my history. Um, Colin Blakely, who died last year, who was the best actor I've ever seen in my life, and who was one of those English um, actors who worked and le learned and knew everything. But, you know, here he probably would have been Spencer Tracy. Um, but but there he was Colin Blakely and and I learned everything uh, that I n know from from people like that but so that's what happened to me <laughs> the you talked about the theater as being you know these are the films and television and um, before we get into some other things, I would like to ask a little bit about the effect of the audience uh, on playing and on being in the theater. And Paul, who's been in films so much and been on television and played Martin Luther King Jr. on, uh, on television and uh, has gotten recognition for things like Sounder and many more. But now you're in a play where it seems to me the audience response is a crucial factor in that play. I don't know that I've been in a long time to a play where the audience is more into it. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and tell us how that affects you and affects the rest of the cast, do you think? Well, it's, it is truly amazing. It's actually like you're getting two shows for the price of one. I mean, there's one in the house and there's one on the stage. The, um, the response is truly amazing, but I think that's uh, due to two things. One is that uh, it's a it's a comedy, <laughs> and the second is that the uh, that the audiences are mostly black, or at least three quarters black generally. And I was, we were all we all discussed this phenomenon. Sidney Poitier came the other night, and we were talking about it. And he were, and sometimes it's a little distracting for us on the stage when, because they get so involved and so uh, start talking back to us. And, uh, <laughs> You said, what? <laughs> I'm talking to you here. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, the, um, he, said it's, he said, don't be put off by it. And don't, um, he said it because it's, it's a kind of an appreciation that in this particular show where they have three very well-known actors who they, uh, they don't often get to see on the stage and often don't get to see together and working in a material, in material that's um, as responsive as this is. Um, then it's a kind of continuous applause, I guess, and it's and it's and it does help. So sometimes you really come in dragging. You say, "I'd like to be anywhere else except on Forty Sixth Street tonight." Um, but you get that first laugh and that response, and somehow it just sort of 
get you right through it. And David, you have a different problem. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's wonderful being in a comedy and having an audience response like because it really does get you through the evening. What does it do to timing? How do you handle that? Oh, it's uh, it keeps you on your toes. Uh, <laughs> truly on your toes. And and a lot of what I watched in Zero Mostel and Jules Munchkin, Munchkin um, has come into um, I've been able to use because. If they, you really do have to set it up, and also know when to cut it off, and it's, uh, and they make you work for it. I mean, you, and it could, you have to keep control. I mean, when they get, when the audience gets control of the play, then it really truly does go down the drain. But, um, but uh, it keeps us on our on our toes. Very interesting, Sylvia. Yeah. You're you're in the theater again after being in a million films. Tell us what you well, feel about it. Well, it's interesting. I'd like to just uh, take uh, what uh, take uh, what Paul uh, take a uh, uh, take it from Paul and just make another point. It's interesting. I made my debut off Broadway in a play called A Stone for Danny Fisher with Zero Mostel, mm -hmm. of course, the past master of comedy. <laughs> so it was a great, and I played opposite, ironically enough, Sidney Pollack, who subsequently became a rather famous film director. But he had been the he had been the um, sidekick or associate or uh, assistant to Sandy Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse. And he, he and I played opposite each other. And uh, uh, the play was directed by, um, by one of the Adlers, Luther Adler, under some other name. Of course, he subsequently got very good reviews under the other name, and he called up all the newspapers and said it was me. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 so several of the... Several, several of the Several of the late previews of the play before we opened were attended by Stella Adler and Harold Clerman, who were married at the time. And of course, Stella Adler being the sister of Luther Adler, she would come backstage because she was very interested, you know, in the young people in the theater, and she was very influential at that time to the young actors. And she would come back and say, do not play to the audience. Do not play the comedy to the audience. Keep it within the play. You know they are there. They are responding to you and makes you feel good, but don't take it from them because they get control. And the minute they get control, you're in trouble. Now, the, ironically, I'm in a comedy at the moment, Tea with Mommy Jack, which is an audience play that the audience does respond to a great deal. And it's interesting because it is so important to, and it's so enjoyable as an actress to play to that, to have that response. But on the other hand, you have to keep such a tight control, right? Because otherwise, they either get ahead of you, or they begin to talk to you, or they, they think they're in a movie. And, you know, <laughs> it's a, it, so yeah. among, among, I worked with Colin Blakely, and this is also just with what Kate said. I did uh, a film with him, I, you know, with James Mason and Colin Blakely. And I had scenes with Colin Blakely, and I learned from him, and this was 1982. So you see, you, know what yeah. I mean? you can always learn from a great uh, character actor. In England, we, they treasure their character actors a great deal more than they tend to here, you know. Eli, you've, you worked with Zero, too. You had to deal with that. <laughs> I made my debut with him. As a matter of fact, I was part of his preparation. Did you know this story? No. Do you know this story? Well, this is a sort of, this is a typical actor story. It was my first play, and I had no idea that actors had a preparation, 
you understand, strange preparation. And Zero's preparation, he would goose me. I was waiting in the wings. I was the first one on the stage. And one night I wasn't there, and he couldn't go on. He kept, kept <laughs> searching all over to find me so he could make his entrance. <laughs> no, I, uh, Anne and I played with Zero uh, in Rhinoceros for almost a year. Um, but you talk about audiences and their influence and their, their response. The director of the play we're doing now said, there's a fourth wall, it's a cafe. Assume that the audience is also seated at tables and let them overhear. But don't push, don't go out to them. Well, one night, they were rather dull. And the computer up here sends messages up and says they're terrible, so you have to push a little harder. And the more you push, the more they retreat until it becomes a strange tug of war between you and the audience. Well, one night, I'm far-sighted and I can see very well. I looked in the front row at a little theater on 2nd Avenue. Ann and I were doing The Typist and the Tiger. And a man was like this. And I thought, wait a minute, I've just come on. <laughs> I, I, we, we can't be that dull. And, and of course, all my focus went on that one man. And all through the play, I kept, he never raised his head. I thought, geez, he's asleep. Anyway, at the end of the show, the stage manager came back and said, someone wants to see you. I said, if it's him, I'll kill him. <laughs> and it was, and he was blind, oh. which, uh, which taught me a valuable lesson. That is, the more the actor goes into what he's doing on stage and worries less about the response, the better he'll be. It, 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 the actor always pretends that the laugh came and surprised him, <laughs> even after playing for months. You know, and there's a part of him that washes over his whole being that says, "Oh, good, you know, good." Well, that's that's what happens to the actor. I I did a comedy act when I was an actress, and we one time played it, and the audience was so dull and so asleep that we finally ended up playing it as a drama and got a <laughs> tremendous applause at the end. <laughs> David, what is the audience in terms, in terms of your relationship to the audience? Because you speak directly to the audience to in, uh, in M. Butterfly. It was just, I was just saying that with M. Butterfly, because I narrate to them and also jump into scenes, it's, it's a very peculiar relationship because I do look out and I do see the guy just going like this. He looks at his wife and he looks at the stage and he goes like this and he just doesn't want to be there. And I watched that for the whole first act. And the first act of this play is a tremendous amount of exposition, but it, it's uh, designed or directed to be uh, uh, funny. I mean, the, the man is presenting himself funny, but it's also the, the character also has a desperate need to tell this story. So it strikes a strange balance. And some nights I'll go out there and it's just, it's a laugh riot. And then I'll go out there other nights and I, it's, it's, it's the house of the living dead out there. I mean, there's no response at all. And it's very hard not to, 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 to try and woo them in because it is a stand-up act. And it's a, very, it's a very difficult thing to play when you're doing a stand-up act and, and, and you get no response and you're expecting one. But I, I, I think I've learned with this one that you just... Then it's, it's more about telling the story. The character's telling the story and he wants to laugh, but for my character, you know, they've, they've, they've laughed at this man because of his 20-year sexual relationship with a man-woman, you know, so that it, it, it seems funny that they, it seems right that they don't respond to him. So it, it gets very strange, this play, because the, the scenes always play pretty much the same, but the narration plays wildly different really? from night to night. Mm -hmm. I mean, a Monday night audience would be wonderful, and the Saturday night audience is, is a painting. It's, it's an amazing thing. But I always love, I mean, you, you asked a question earlier about why 
the difference between theater and, 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 and film and television. And for me, the theater is like it's real because I know when my work is right because they, they cough or they don't cough or they laugh or they don't laugh. And, it's, and it's, that's why I love to come back here. This kind of challenge you just don't get in, in theater and television. And in film. Uh, uh, yes, yes, uh, yeah, film and television. Uh, you, you just don't get it. And I, and I love this challenge of coming out every night and trying to, to crack this little nut uh, of telling this story. And in, it's in, different almost every night. It's, uh, it's wildly different from night to night, you know. And, and you also get pockets of laughter. You get a group that may understand it. Or, you know, and then we'll have great French groups. We had, you know, 150 French people the other day, and they just didn't catch it fast enough, you know. It went by, their English wasn't good enough. And so there was this huge block of the house that I couldn't get anything out of. And of course, I eventually realized it was a French group, you know, but it, which is, is similar to the other story. Yes. Absolutely. Isabel? Where did you learn the stand-up technique? Because it's very difficult nowadays. There are very, places that an, very few places that an actor can go and hone his trade and learn how to draw in audiences. Well, I, I did a little of it when I first started in the early 60s. I, I played a couple little clubs in San Francisco That's and whatnot. A, and I, I guess my first one was, you know, giving a current events report in, 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 in social studies that would, you know, a three-minute report that would go 40 minutes, you know, <laughs> and, and keep them laughing. But I think that's where it started and, you know, the variety club, you know, the variety contest at summer camp. You it's know, very that, important to have that kind well, of Well, being able to play an audience, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Kate, in the, well, you've been, uh, in terms of spoils of war, uh, you've been at second stage and, and then in Toronto for six weeks, right, mm -hmm. and in New York, and is the are, wh what is the adjustment like in terms of the audience? In terms, as it is it, are you having to find this, or is it has there been some consistency about audience response? No, none at all. I've figured out that the more people pay, the harder they laugh. They're <laughs> 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 paying a lot more on Broadway, and they're laughing a lot more too. Oh, really? Yeah, downtown. I mean, I mean uptown. I think downtown because when we're yes. at the little theater, the second stage, <coughs> you know, they didn't pay enough. <laughs> uh, I'm always, I'm always, this, uh, this is one of the first chances I've got to, 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 to um, speak dialogue that's meant to be funny. That's right, because you've, you've played, a, you've played yeah. a lot of serious yeah, characters. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I am, because it's taken so long for me to get a part like this, I am just suffused with gratitude at a laugh. I mean, my whole being is just, I want to get on my knees. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone said I couldn't do this. And they're wrong, aren't they? I, I love it. It's, but it is deeply corrupting. It's quite true. It's very corrupting because it, you, you do, you're, it's like a carrot, it's like the rabbit and the carrot. Or if you don't get a laugh, it makes you crazy. <clears throat> and of course, you force and do all that. But it's, it's exciting. It's an awful lot more fun to get laughs. Then, right, you've done a lot of comedy, obviously. And uh, in terms of, how is it, how did playing with him? That's the biggest comedy of all. <laughs> <laughs> I like serial comedy. You know where it's, where they laugh and cry. I don't know. You know Ed, Edmund Gwynn, who was a marvelous character actor, was dying. This is a story that all actors know, and it's, I think, what we're talking about here. And this director came to see him, and he was really in, his, in the last phase of, of life. He had cancer. And the director went to the door, and he said, it's, looked at all the tubes in Ed Gwynn, and he said, it's rough, isn't it, Ed? And Ed said, 
Not as rough as comedy. <laughs> uh, well, and I, I mean, nobody can analyze why that's so, but it's in comedy, you really do have to go for broke and you really do have to listen and, and create that moment. There's, in, in, when you're doing tragedy or you're doing a drama, the audience is respectful of whatever pause you take and they go along with you. It, you, may, you may take the pause because you don't remember your next line, <laughs> but they don't know that. If you take that pause in comedy, you have killed the laugh and are dead. If you walk into another person's laugh, you have thrown the timing of the play. This is what makes it so delicate and what makes actors so interdependent on each other. And it's why we have such fun, I think, Eli and I, playing together because I, uh, we protect each other uh, on, on stage, you know, for, for laughs and things. I mean, if I ever walked into one of his laughs, forget <laughs> it, I could not go home that night. <laughs> I could not. I mean, the look I would get, I can't describe it to you. <laughs> but the look right now. Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, that's it. That's it. His eyes get narrow and they come close together and I get very frightened. Once, once I broke up on stage, Oh, God. once I've done it a couple of times, but I was in a play that was a very, very funny play called Love, L-U-V. And uh, I broke up on stage because a man in the audience, uh, uh, don't forget, Alan Arkin was in this play and sat on my lap, for starters, that's funny. <laughs> there was a man in the audience whose wife evidently went into the bathroom whenever they had a fight, and so I had a line where I said to Alan, when I was trying to dump him, uh, I say to him, why do you think I was, uh, uh, what do you think I was doing in the bathroom all night? Well, this man in the audience evidently had a wife who went in and cried, and he got so hysterical that he fell out of his seat. And I knew that I had to say the line again. Well, so I, I couldn't help it. The audience was screaming with laughter, and I started to laugh, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, I said. <laughs> I said, let's all have a good laugh, and then I went back in the play. Well, now, Eli... <laughs> unfortunately comes on the stage after that and the audience was under control they loved it they gave me a round for admitting that I couldn't go on Alan and I were in control and he comes on and says upstage spitting at me amateur <laughs> <laughs> I'm facing the audience and I laughed again now we had a date with I'm gonna name drop a big one you ready for this name with with Sir John Gilgood and Sir John was playing in Tiny Alice at the time, and we were meeting him in Sardis, and of course Eli said, I'm reporting her. He came off stage fuming. I mean, there was smoke coming out of his nose and eyes. He said, I'm reporting her to equity. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran out of the theater. I was so ashamed. And I went into Sardis, and I met, I met Sir John, and I told him that I broke up on stage, and I said, Sir John, have you ever broken up? Oh, he said to me, well, he said, well, you know, Larry Olivier is a giggler. I thought, well, <laughs> I'm in very good company. How generous of you. I said, Sir John, have you ever broken up on stage? And he said in that marvelous, sonorous voice, oh, my God, I'd be too frightened. <laughs> That's comedy. Oh, God. What happens to you, Eli? 
not Annie, but somebody else. Well, no, I, I, this, this truly happened. We talked about, you talked about addressing an audience, and for two years I addressed an audience in a play called Tea House of the August Moon, both in London and here. And half the part was in Japanese, and I was always terrified that some night a Japanese would stand up and point at me and say, liar, you know. So, so there were four, I could see very well, and there were four in the front row, and the captain in the play says, tell the natives there's going to be rice for everyone, and all the Japanese went out of my head except the school will have five sides like the Pentagon. So he said, tell them there'll be rice. I said, the school will have five sides like the Pentagon. And the, and the Japanese in the audience thought I'd gone crazy, and so did the actors on stage. That was one communication with their audience. The other was, I came out one night in London at Her Majesty's, and sitting in the front row was Winston Churchill. And I bowed as the interpreter, the little Oriental in Okinawan. I bowed, I bowed, I looked straight at him, and I was as close as I am to Paul, and I bowed. And he had a hearing aid, and he went like this, and I didn't know if he turned it off or on. <laughs> Well, I never was there more communication with one person in the audience. <laughs> You've all talked about how much you, you, you've learned from other actors. But Annie said something about it takes 20 years to be an actress. And what happens in those 20 years? Where do you, where do you go to learn this fine timing that we're talking about now with the audience of comedy, for example? Where have you been? What have you been doing? Acting. <laughs> Where? In front of an Where? audience anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. In front of an audience anywhere. Right here. Yeah. Have you, have you yeah. think this is how I really talk? Have you continued working with Absolutely. other Absolutely. That, that's what's amazing about acting, about learning. Paul mentioned zero and what you learn mm -hmm. from, from watching people. Um, you, you pick up odd things. I think when an actor is most relaxed is when he's at his best. A lot of things have been stored up here. If I put a bowl of oatmeal under someone's nose, they, they don't have to do anything, but they will evoke memories of all kinds of things, or flowers, or smell, taste. All the senses are in play. Now, I've been trying to get a laugh in this play. Now, we've been playing since September 27th. I have not succeeded. <laughs> I told him how to get it. <laughs> oh, yes. We have, a, we, have a, we have an agreement, you see. It is. The agreement seems to be that she can tell me anything, make suggestions. As soon as I do, the hair stands up on the back of her neck. <laughs> And it's, don't tell me, and don't, how dare you destroy me, and so on and so on. So, the same thing out of the theater. <laughs> once, once we had a fight on the way to the theater. We were doing a two-character play, and we had this fight, and I'm driving, and driving with Anne is an experience. So, so I finally left the car on 70th Street, got out, slammed the door, and said, you take the damn car, and you go to... The... So she went. She didn't have her glasses. She got there about five minutes late, and I'm sitting at the getting made up, and the lady who worked for both of us in the dressing room, the dresser, and Anne looked in the mirror and said, tell him I never want to see him again. I never <laughs> see him again. And I said, you tell her, I don't care, that she's going to tell me how to drive. And so we get on stage. I've kidnapped her, tied her in a chair, and said, shut up. Well, it had an extra added... <laughs> and she talked about breaking up, because she looked at me and had a line. She said... Don't, 
I have a husband and two children. I said, I don't care. She said, don't you love anyone? I said, myself? She says, no, beside yourself. Your mother? And I went, ugh. <laughs> and then after that, she says to me, you have kind eyes. Yes. Her line was, you have kind looking, you have kind looking eyes. And I gave her a look and she, she, could, she broke up. <laughs> What brings you back on again? How do you get back into character? A look from her. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you about to tell us about getting a laugh that you've been trying since second I can't get yeah. it. I'm still working. Oh, you are. I see. But she's told you how to do it. Yes, she has. And it doesn't work. <laughs> because he doesn't do what I do. <laughs> do they you teach cannot you that? go for the laugh. I mean, he knows that, right? You have to break the pattern. And start well, all was over it the, the famous Alfred Leland Fontan story about he used to get a, a laugh on uh, something about asking for a cup of tea, and then he, he slowly lost it over the course of the run, and then he started working it and working it, working it, and he finally in, in the restroom says, "I don't know. I've just I've tried it, tried it." She says, "Why don't you just ask for the tea and not for a laugh?" That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's and it, you know, oh, it eventually oh, got it back. Are clever. Yes. <laughs> if I could only ask do it, it's yes, yes, of yeah. course, if you can only do it. Yeah. Well, you don't have that problem apparently. Well, no, but it's, it's interesting in terms of trying to get laughs on working in film. It's very different, and I oh. learned from some real masters. I had to do a scene. I was playing Diane Carroll's boyfriend, and we were supposed to have this fight, and the director kept saying, well, it's, it's not enough in it, you know, more. <laughs> more. So, I mean, he was telling her that, basically, and, and being trained in the stage, I mean, well, maybe I'm not giving her enough for her to come back, and so... So my performance got bigger and bigger and bigger, and finally, when it was aired, I saw it. I was waiting for this great fight scene. She was perfect. She had a little fire in her eye, but I looked like Quasimodo. I mean, <laughs> it was, and I said, oh, we had to, like, change this to fit into this little box, which took me, I'm still working on absolutely, it, absolutely. <laughs> trying to get into fit into, you see other actors and you say, gee, they're not doing anything. And then you see it on film, and it's a revelation. It's, it's, it's an ongoing process. Okay. It gets a lot of laughs these days, yeah. uh, especially in the new play, uh, uh, Crossing Delancey. Tell us about that. Well, it's interesting because uh, uh, before, uh, I think David mentioned something about, you know, having this, uh, you know, desperate need to come back, you know, to the live stage like we all do because of the maybe sterility of you doing it behind the camera and so forth. But I've always found somehow or other it's the only way, if, particularly if you're doing a comedy part in a movie where there is obviously no audience, and it's not so much that you're playing it to the audience, but I found for some reason or other, if I were really into it, so into it, as in a stage performance, not uh, a motion picture performance, Literally, because I don't do anything different. The only difference is because of the medium, I've learned to maybe control the physical amount of uh, effort that I will give. You know, I will, you know, make faces or be grotesque or something on the screen because the littlest bit will look that way anyway. But I find that the crews are watching like you are on the stage. Yeah. And generally, if you think of yourself, in a sense, doing that as a theater performance, 
you know, you, you, you'll, the feedback will come that way, you know, for that kind of, uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> if you're lucky. But now I don't they can do, be pretty jaded. But I don't do too much television. I do mostly motion pictures, and for some reason or other, when they do hire legitimate actors, the directors that hire them, they really expect you to give a, a legitimate performance, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Since we're talking about audiences, have you talked to the audience that's coming into Checkmates? This is a new kind of audience coming into Broadway theater. Uh, have I talked to them directly? Yeah. We, have, we have question and answer mm -hmm. things after certain shows, yes. Do you, th do you think they're going to continue coming in? Well, I certainly hope so. Well, but, I do too. Uh, yes, but, uh, no, but I think it is, and it's been increasing, and because we don't do much advertising, it's, it really is it purely word, word of, of mouth, mouth and it's yeah. word of mouth show that has literally grown every week. It's, it's very gratifying. Good. That's very good to, to have a whole new audience come in to yep. Broadway. We're going to have to take a break at this point, and uh, we're going to ask for questions to the panelists. So at some point, make sure that you have your <coughs> questions ready and give it to someone from the American Theatre Wing who will come by and say, please have your questions and hand it to you. Don't go far away. Just stand up, stretch, and come right down again. Thank you. <laughs> What is the ashtray doing there? <laughs>on what it is to work in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and these seminars on working in the theater are part of the WINGS program, and they're coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're going to go right back where we left off on how you handle an audience and how the audience handles you with this splendid, splendid panel of performers. Jean, would you like to pick up from here and go right on? Where were we? <laughs> So yeah, let's go on. <laughs> you, you start. Well, the question was, how do you handle an audience, or how does an audience handle you? An audience begins to expect, you, you set up, I have set up a certain personality here, and Sylvia has, and uh, Eli has, we all have. And so you expect us to say something funny to you at, at some point. So if we change and suddenly become serious, uh, 
the audience says, oh, oh no, that's not what we were promised. We were promised a good time and, and fun with this character. Uh, that happens in a play. You, you have to, that's why we were just talking about uh, getting laughs and, and uh, style in a play. The, the actor does not set the style. There's no such thing as playing style or playing nobility. You have to play the situation that the writer wrote and through the other actor that you're playing with, it has to go through that actor to you. We pretend you're not there. We both know you're there. But we are trying to do something to each other to make the scene. So that you, acting is in a, in a sense, and especially in comedy acting, you say, what did so-and-so say to you, for example? You say, it's not what so-and-so said. It's the way he said it. Now, what does that mean? It means that the way he said something made you respond in a certain way. You say, he's a very odd man. And you say, why is he odd? I don't know. It's the way he looks at you. So you notice it's never the words or, or the things. So that is, that is in comedy acting, uh, I think, probably one of the most important things that, that an actor has to learn to do, to listen, to hear, and to play the situation, to create that situation with the other actor so that you, the audience, are overhearing. And that's when you have the most fun. Well, I... Eli, yeah, do you uh, want to argue? Uh, no, I don't. No. I don't. <laughs> Actually, we, we were at a, a benefit. They were honoring uh, Mike Nichols, who's a master of comedy. And the master of ceremonies was George Abbott, who's 100 years old. And he had directed a young lady in a play, and she said to him, Mr. Abbott, this is the story Nichols told. Mr. Abbott, I've lost a laugh. I used to get a laugh. He said, where? She said, when I uh, use the phone. You remember when I go to the telephone and I dial? And Abbott said, show me how you do it. So she went over and dialed. He said, I'll tell you why you lost the laugh. You dialed the wrong number. <laughs> 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 now, that's... That's very funny, but the truth of the matter is he was serious because what she did was dial all the ones so to get it over with quickly instead of really dialing the real that's number. And that's numbers. why she lost the laugh. I, I remember a story Stella Adler once told where she had to murder somebody on stage and when she went to get the knife, it wasn't there. And there was a bowl of fruit. And without, without stopping any of the original motivation or whatever it was, she grabbed this banana and she, she <laughs> killed the guy with the banana. Now, the, the point of the story was that nobody knew that that wasn't the way it was supposed to be and nobody laughed because of the fact that she didn't change the behavior to do. So it's in the same way, some t if, the, if, if the motivation or the reason that you're doing whatever you're doing is for real, it will always, in comedy, it will always evoke the response, whether it's a large laugh, whether it's a small laugh, whether even the laugh isn't there, the rhythm of it will still be instilled in the audience if it's done for real. For the effect, then you always lose it. And the audience, by the way, is the first one to get that. And they hate you when you do that. <laughs> well, that's, I think Annie said it before, is it's important that the audience realizes that what I say, I mean. And that's the whole crux of what you were saying. But it takes a lot to get to that. And I want to keep coming back to where you were before you got to that. Eli, talk about the theater. 
Well, I, I, I met two young men who have been honored in, in Dallas, Texas. They're, they're budding actors, young actors, and they come to New York, which is huge, which is a, a jungle, a maze, and you think, how do I ever get started? The, the theater is shrinking. I can give you all the negatives, and still there's some little part of you that hopes that you alone can come back and rejuvenate and revive the theater. That spirit in young people is wonderful. Uh, as we, you know, it's like those big seals. The young seals always attack them, you know, and drive them off, and then they go king of the hill. I think the theater is, has been a fabulous invalid for a long time. And uh, to quote John Hausman, who just died, if God looked down and said to him, John, you've got a choice, never mind, what would you pick of all the media? He'd say, I'd go back to the theater that there, it, it's the ultimate challenge. We have two daughters who are actresses, and every time they're rejected, we go home and Ann says, why do we have to live through it twice? <laughs> but, but you must have built within you that, that spark which says, I will not be rejected. I will make it. Uh, the way it seems to me now with the shrinking Broadway theater and the price of tickets and so on is to go to the regional theaters. Booker T. Washington, a famous black scientist who invented peanut butter, <laughs> said... Peanut butter? Yes, yeah, he did. Among other things. And peanut oil and so on, who said, cast your buckets where you are. Don't build it here. Build where you are. Grow where you are. Uh, insights, brilliance, talent is not endemic to New York City. It exists all over the United States. So the people from away from here think with an inferiority complex about their ability. It's not true. Not true. So go back. Make your theater where you are. Build it so that this, the New York theater is becoming a, like a huge vacuum cleaner. It sucks up. It used to build and develop things here and ship it out. Now it looks to Louisville, Kentucky, Pittsburgh, Los Angeles, London, eh, London mm -hmm. wherever. Put it on roller skates and put a cat in it, and you, you got to <laughs> But but that's that's that unfortunately is what Broadway has become. Uh, they don't take chances anymore. It's too expensive. We're in a play now that has 18 actors. To do that play on Broadway would cost almost a million dollars with an exquisite set. A set where the people gasp as the lights come up, uh, where some people say, my God, they've kept that Cafe Royale in storage all these years and now rebuilt it. But uh, the problem that the actor has in, in facing the theater is he's got to have guts, a thick skin, and a determination to, to survive. But Eli, everybody wants to come to New York, not necessarily Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, but New York. New York goes out to the regional theaters and does go out to London, but the, the mecca is New York. As an actor, have you any idea of why or how we can bring the ticket prices down, bring the audiences into the theater? Into well, we're, the we're operating theater. in a unique theater. In which and the audience goes in. You're not, you're not cheap anymore, either. No, it's, it's $25 a ticket. But he, he, he gives away, or he has $12.50 ticket, $12.50 for senior citizens or people who sit on the chairs and wait. Uh, but it's only 300 seats. Now, I said to a business manager of a Broadway theater, 
Why can't we move this play uptown and say $25, that's it. All seats, $25, he says. The audience will say, what's wrong with the play? Oh, I don't agree with that. Well, no. that's, that I can't. Now, I said then I would take out an ad in the paper and say, top of the line, tickets are $25. There's nothing wrong with this play. <laughs> we, we love it, and we hope you will. If you don't like it, we'll give you back your money. The man said, you'll be in an institution. I said, no, you won't. What are you getting? What are you getting? Do you know? I mean, uh, what am I? What is your ticket price? At oh, the top is thirty-seven fifty. Mm -hmm. And you're getting full houses mm -hmm. on it, mostly. So. <laughs> there is that difference in it. Yes, We're but there's also the gimmick of of uh, the line. You know the line on uh, apps, right? Tickets so they make the price fifty dollars, so you sell a twenty-five dollar mm -hmm. ticket. Mm -hmm. I went to the Schuberts and said, "Why don't I take out an ad?" We were doing a two-character play called Twice Around the Park. Why don't I take an ad with a picture of those people online? freezing in the snow and the rain and say look don't stand on the line there we'll give you hot coffee come to the box office and i'll sell you the ticket for the same price and they said you can't do that you can you destroy the whole structure of fifty dollars tickets for twenty five dollar tickets so <laughs> well it, isabel it, part of the problem is that uh, during the so so to speak glorious days of the american theater you know and this new york was its mecca the the producers and the people who were putting on the plays, the angels, the producers, were people who loved the theater, were theater buffs, were people who were imbued with the love of the theater from the time they grew up and their, their dream was to become a producer. So much of it has become a business and businessmen and, and the business practices, corporate practices, that that have proven successful in the corporate takeovers has sort of come into the theater. So that, I well, mean... it's because of the high cost of, right. of theater so that today. Where we should be, we'll get back to working where in the we theater. We should be telling these actors who are coming from out of town to hone their craft and to constantly study and to constantly do workshops where actually these things now are done. Most of the productions are done in workshops as opposed to out-of-town tryouts oh. to associate themselves with a group so that they can learn at the same time. That's, that's very good advice. Neil, si Neil yeah, Simon very wrote a, good. Thank you. Neil Simon wrote a small skit about uh, uh, room service. <coughs> a, a, a young man, what's his name? Still and Mira, they did it. He calls up room service and says, hello, room service, uh, I want a bacon and tomato sandwich, and the bacon should be crisp, and so on, and I want Amadeus. And she says, what room are you in? He says, 314. She says, Amadeus is on the ninth floor, and it's booked for a month. <laughs> he says, she says, well, he says, I'll send you night mother says the, the room service. He says, I don't want night mother. It deals with suicide. I don't want that from room service. He says, what can you have? He says, we'll send you James Whitmore. He'll do anything. <laughs> <laughs> We're now going to open yeah. this session well. to questions from the audience. <coughs> and uh, it, I don't know how we're going to get in all the questions that people have been wanting to ask this very talented panel here, but we're going to try. Hello, I'm Roz Dunn, and my question to the panel is, what were your best and worst audition experiences in the theater? <laughs> Anybody? How do you feel about auditioning? Anyway, let's take that around. It's a necessary evil. I don't know if it's, I've been a director too, and there's, there's sort of no other way to pick the actor, I think. 
you know, that, that I think we've discovered, unless you, you know the actor and have seen his other performances and, and, and know he's right for it. So it's like a necessary evil, but it, as an actor, it's just it's the hardest thing in the world. I've never uh, uh, felt good in auditioning. I just can't do it, because I only think that I work well in four weeks of rehearsal. Uh, but the, the best and worst, uh, gosh, one of the best was for Travesties, where Peter Wood, j the director, just came up and we, we just talked it through. We talked it through this way and through that. And actually, Austin Pendleton for Spoils of War, when I came on audition for that, we just, you know, with he and Peter Weller, we just talked it out. It was just an easy thing where we try this, we try that. And it was like a little rehearsal. But, and then the worst was probably the first professional audition I did, which was for Bill Ball. And ACT had just come to town. And I remember coming into the, the new offices were just plywood and... and, and uh, um, uh, half-finished offices. Then you were ushered into Bill Ball's office and it was your carpets and hanging ferns and this 12-foot desk and a model of the tiny Alice set on the desk and Bill in one of those rattan, Tennessee Williams rattan chairs and a Spanish hat and his boots sort of saying, what do you have for me? And he said, they told me I wasn't going to have to audition. This was just a meeting. And he says, well, it's not. What do you have? And I says, do you have a collective work? I did Benedict for Much Ado. And he said, it's on the shelf over there. So you pick out the thing. And then I remember looking at it and going over uh, uh, Much Ado and then getting up, and I start, and I say, I do much wonder, ring, 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 the phone rings. <laughs> so I stop, and he says, oh, no, don't stop. It'll ring all the way through. <laughs> okay. And so in the course of my first audition for my first uh, professional company, there were three telephones and two burst-ins. Oh, Bill, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> that was my worst audition. And uh, I went out of there saying, well, my professional career will never begin. And, uh, you know, Did you it, audition for M. Butterfly? Oh, yeah, I came in and auditioned for that. I, I flew in and auditioned. It was very nice, very professional. I got up, I read my three scenes, and they said, thank you very much. And Paul Servino walked, walked up next. And, you know, and then, then they waited and waited and, uh, to finally make a decision. Because you know, then I, they waited until too late, and they only gave me two weeks' rehearsal in the end because <laughs> they couldn't make a decision. Well, who else? Eli? Well, do you, no, you, do you, you still audition? You want to... No, I, I, I think of my first audition. For Josh Logan said to me, I want you to audition for Rodgers and Hammerstein for a, a musical called South Pacific. I said, well, I can't sing. I, I can't. He said, you won't have to sing, just read. And I walked out on the stage in this black blackness out there, and I said, I read, and he said, thank you very much, and a voice said, now sing. And I said, and the pianist came running up to me and said, what key? <laughs> and, and I whispered to the pianist, I figured the only thing to do would be ad lib, so I whispered to him, he went back to the piano, I put an imaginary coin and an imaginary phone and said, hello, I'll be down to get you in a taxi, honey. <laughs> and I hung up and said, I can't do it, I got butterflies in my stomach. And they said, we'll get you a real phone next time. <laughs> and I didn't get the part. <laughs> next. Hello. My name is Liliana Komorowska and I would like to address it to the whole panel. Do you ever get a stage fright? If yes, well, what, how do you deal with this? <laughs> I'll answer that. <laughs> I went into a play called Major Barbara after it had been running, and it's a play by Shaw and with Charles Lawton. And I, I knew my lines, but I was so nervous and so rushed into this play. And he, when he directed me, said, and I don't want you to uh, make a fist or move your, your eyes, and I want you to play this as though it's a camera. So I, start, I, I was doing this, this uh, speech in the play with him, and I got what they call an anxiety attack, <laughs> where my heart was beating a mile a minute, and I, and I could hear my own voice, and I didn't sound like 
anything. I hated what I sounded like. I wanted to get off the stage. It was the worst, worst feeling that I've ever, ever had. And the only way I got rid of that was by saying, I cannot play this with the idea of playing for a camera in my head. Yes. <clears throat> I have got to... I have got to defy Charles Lawton, who is the star of this play. <laughs> I have got to defy him and not be looking where he tells me to look. And I did that. I came to the theater and I did that. I didn't do anything I was told to do. Well, he played his poverty speech the best he ever played it that night. I don't know how good I was, but I was the defiant daughter. And when I came off stage, he said to me, a line in the play sent for me. I went to his dressing room and I thought, well, the, uh, he can only fire me. That's the only thing he can do. And that's it. <laughs> and I went into the dressing room and he looked at me through the mirror and he said, a line in the play was to his son, you have earned your latch key. And that's what I mean by Greek performing. Oh. I went out of the dressing room. I went up and I thought, oh my God, I played like the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Come uh, this is for David Dukes and anyone else who has experienced this or knows about it from hearsay. What is the best or worst thing about taking over a role already created by another actor? Uh, well, I've done it a few times. Uh, the best thing is you get to see other performances and you can pick and choose. So you can steal the good things and throw away what you don't like. So I, I, I used to call it selective theft. And, uh, and I just, you know, that works, so I'll take that and, you know, and that doesn't. The, the hard part is that you're getting on, for instance, with M. Butterfly, you're getting on a production that's just moving like this. And you, you're coming into a production that is a success not because of anything you have done. It is a big success for reasons other than you. So you, you, you have to support all that. You have to make sure that every other actor's performance still works. You, I'm an opposite a Tony Award winning performance, so I'm not going to destroy that performance. But you also have to bring your own individual stamp to it. And how that do is done, I, I don't know. But I, you just sort of figure it out each time out. But it's, that's the hard part, is to come in and, and, and intuit what the playwright and the directors, because they're two different contributions, what each of their contributions are and, and make them both work and still keep the play going and bring what you, whatever you think is, uh, 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 is a new energy to it. And I, it's just, it's a delicate balance that you strike every time. Thank you. Until, like, Thank you. Very good. Hi, I'm Patrick O'Leary and I have a question for the whole panel. I wanted to know what qualities you look for in a director and what qualities you try and bring out in a director in order for the entire piece <laughs> to be effective. Oh. <laughs> I, I think, I think should Nelly that. should answer. <laughs> Miss Nelly, can I, I just try, answer. you know, if it's anything short of a psychopath, is basically my rule. Um, we all laughed because it. Not, my career has been 90% of my life is not finding the character. It's being able to work with that person who doesn't understand that they work in a way that is entirely different from e every other person you've ever worked with. Um, this year, for instance, I've worked with Max Stafford Clark and Austin Pendleton in the same year. Went from a man who's, who told you how many inches a step you should take should be six and a half inches, and if it was eight, you were told, in a production that was wildly, wildly successful, and, and a director's piece. I mean, Serious Money was 
a tour de force for a director and, a, and an ensemble come. And then to, to Austin, whose who's, who's method is entirely to do with patience and non-involvement, except when absolutely essential. It's like being with a, an ultimate Freudian shrink. I mean, you go years, nothing said. Um, uh, And, and you, I really, I mean, I'm being lighthearted, but I really do mean it that, that uh, uh, it's extremely difficult to be a successful actor if you define a successful actor as someone who can work with, uh, with uh, directors, each of whom is entirely, entirely different. It is a big, big part of the job. Do you have any preference on which, which type of director you, know, you Austin is the first American director I've ever worked with. I've only worked with French, German, English directors. This is the first, incredibly, I've been doing this for so many years. Um, it's the first American director, so I, I, I say that because, I mean, my whole training and everything was with a, I guess a more, if, if Austin is, is representative of things here, what I've been used to and the people that I grew up with were used to was a far more formal approach mm -hmm. to, 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 the, to the business of directing, a far more intrusive approach and and um, this was by far the most um, laissez-faire I've ever I've ever worked with so maybe that is or is not representative I don't know but it was extremely uh, wonderful and, and fun. Does anyone else want to take I just this? Briefly I, I've been a member of the Actors Studio and for a long time and I think one of the best things I got from Lee Strasberg in all those years was how to work without a director mm -hmm. that you can bring a performance without any help from anyone else, uh, or, or not help. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I don't agree with that. No, uh, no I don't agree with that. I, I do think it's wonderful training for an actor to be able to bring something. But have I think a method, you have to methodology. bring something to the director, because then he choreographs the whole thing. And uh, it's, it's when you think that a good director makes you think that you have created, created that it. by mm -hmm. yourself. And uh, I noticed that, that uh, Kate didn't use the word permissive because uh, Austin is not a permissive director. Mm -hmm. He is, uh, that was a very good description of, of, uh, of him. I've seen his productions. He has a concept of the entire thing and that's uh, terribly, terribly important for, for the actor to have a, a director who makes you think, yes, you've done it, and then who, uh, Kazan was a genius at that, mm -hmm. and then who brings that production and makes but don't it, you find, Anne, that, that if you're working with people less than <coughs> Kazan, and most are less yes. than Kazan, um, that very, very often there is no view. Or, or not a coherent view. Yeah. I, 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 I tend to think that, that uh, younger actors, people younger than me, and, and, and my, I mean, there are no more Kazan. And we weren't trained by people of that caliber, yeah. a lot of, a, you know, or, or had exposure to that kind of thing. And an awful lot of, and I'm, I don't think I'm being too cynical, an awful lot of the, the life of an actor is surviving the director you're de dealing with, <laughs> just surviving but I, I took a, I studied with Harold Clerman, who actually taught, you know, actors to how to, in a sense, direct themselves, uh, you know, similarly to Elise Strasberg, in case of such a, an occasion. I found when I worked in England and I played the reps, Chichester and, and Nottingham, that the actors 
was sort of shocked when I said, well, let's work this out, you know, tonight in the hotel room or whatever, <laughs> yeah. and then we'll bring it in tomorrow to save all that tr trouble. And they looked at me sort of askance and wondered how I would have the temerity to even dare to talk to another actor because they don't make a move without the director. On the other hand, I find if you don't, you know, with us in, in America, the director's usually happy if you come in and bring everything in, then he can work with the people that maybe are not quite that, you know what I mean, uh, creative on their own or, you know, whatever. Once more, I have to interrupt you. I keep doing this all the time at this very important part of the seminars on working in the theater. This is the performance seminar, and these wonderful performers have been analyzing and discussing and cooperating with each other on what it is to work in the theater. I'm reminded of a line in, in Eli's play, Cafe Crown, in, in which uh, he, someone says, my goodness, I've been in the theater all my life, and I've, I've learned more in three weeks working with this man than I have in all of the years of working. And I think that we have learned more in an hour and a half with these people have, than anybody could get in schools or training or any place else that you might go. We're now talking about the directors, <laughs> and tomorrow is going to be the time for directors to tell us how they feel about the actors. This is a <laughs> seminars on working in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson. They're coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This is but one of the programs, one of the services of the American Theater Wing, which is a year-round organization. I am so pleased that you are all here, and I thank you very much and I hope that you will continue to watch Working in the Theater seminars. Thank you. I didn't get that.